you might even have diabetes unknowingly. A lot of the people who are undiagnosed aren't visiting their doctor. They're not tracking any data whatsoever. So they're walking around with, with diabetes, not knowing it, which is a silent killer, increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease and all these other metabolic issues. I'm educated. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a diabetes educator. I'm living with diabetes. How could I not share this information? My guest today is Drew Harrisburg, an exercise physiologist, a sports scientist, and also a type 1 diabetic, which is a diagnosis that Drew received when he was 22 years old that sent him on this journey to understand this particular disease and how to thrive along with it as both an athlete as well as an educator through his online platform, Drew's Daily Dose, and his many appearances on our mutual friend Simon Hill's podcast, The Proof. In this conversation, we go deep on Drew's personal story, as well as the physiology of diabetes. We discuss the differences between type 1, type 2, and pre-diabetes, and also the differences between what can be prevented or reversed versus, on the other hand, managed through lifestyle, movement, mindset, and, of course, nutrition, which leads us into how diet impacts blood glucose management, what is important to understand about this and what isn't. We also talk about Drew's take on the usefulness of continuous glucose monitors, as well as Drew's search for the optimal diet to manage his own condition and improve the lives of those he coaches, which is a journey that took him from paleo to keto to, wait for it, whole food, plant-based. And it's coming right up after a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And 
With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Super nice to finally meet you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, we are sitting in our mutual friend, Simon Hill's uh, studio. Um, so shout out to Simon. Thank you for opening up your space uh, to let us record today. And you're somebody, Drew, who came on my radar because of our mutual friend, Simon. I think you've been a guest on his show something like 12 times or something like I'll that. Stop <laughs> counting, but it might be around Quite there, a yeah. few, right? So clearly... <laughs> Uh, a trusted source on a show that's literally called The Proof. Yeah. Uh, so you've been vetted and uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. I think your personal story is really compelling. And in your own words, talk a little bit, like introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about like who you are and, 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 and what you do. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the show. I mean, it's, it feels so weird doing it in my home, hometown. I would not have expected us to be doing it in Bondi, but it, it's awesome that you're here and I'm excited to share my story with your audience. I've, sh I've shared my story with Simon's audience a number of times, but I haven't spoken about it for a long time because you know what happens when you tell mm -hmm. your story over and over. It becomes like a story you tell rather than something that you really feel in the moment. So yeah. I'm excited to, to go through it with you today. So, I mean, I, I guess the best way to, to introduce myself would be to go back to, I guess, life before diabetes, as, as I like to say. When I was... Uh, when I was 21 or about 22, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which was something that I actually, I knew a little bit about it because I'd studied to become an exercise physiologist. And we learned a lot about diabetes and how to treat it and manage it. 
But until I actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you really, you don't understand the depth of, of, of a condition or a disease until you're living it. So before being diagnosed, I, I grew up in Bondi. I had the best upbringing you could have, you know. I finished school and I decided I want to pursue a, a career in music. So I was playing gigs around Bondi and all over Sydney. And I was actually making money playing music, which I never thought would happen. I was traveling the world. I was carefree, cruising on autopilot. Life was honestly just too good to be true. And I was aware of it. I didn't take it for granted at all. Um, but there was this sort of transition period which lasted for about six to 12 months where I noticed that my health was, I just knew that something was wrong. It was hard to explain what, it was just this feeling, this innate feeling that there was something wrong. And at that time, I'd, I'd already finished university. I graduated as uh, an exercise physiologist or a sports scientist. And I was in the process of getting my accreditation to become an exercise physiologist. And as part of the accreditation, you have to do a certain number of like clinical hours at a hospital or a physiotherapist. So I remember this one day, I was doing my accreditation at this physiotherapist and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. This sounds so vain, but I, I saw myself in the mirror and I had this moment where I was like, I'm really skinny. Like I'm, I never used to be this skinny. Like what is, what the hell is going on? I've lost all my muscle. And I sort of talked myself out of it, but I was like, this is weird. I'm going to start eating more food and try to bulk up. I was playing rugby as well at the time. And obviously it's a very physical sport. You need to be strong and you need your body weight to be up. So I jumped on the scale at the physio and I was around 70 kilos whilst my pre-season weight or my normal healthy body weight was 83 kilos. So I was like 10 to 12 kilos under where I should be. Without any change in your diet? No change in my diet, training hard, you know, focused on maintaining a strong body so I could play this sport. So I started to eat more food and really started just anything and everything was coming in. And I then finished that placement at the physiotherapist and I had to start another one at a hospital in um, just down south. And I was working at a cardiac rehab ward. But to get into that position as the, I guess, the trainee student to get the accreditation, you sit through an interview, sort of like at a desk, just like we are now, face to face with the head of the cardiac rehab facility. And I'm sitting there across from this guy. And all of a sudden, I'm like dozing off. My eyes are shutting. It feels like my eyelid is just heavy. And I'm like, I cannot believe I'm falling asleep face to face right now with the guy who's trying to get me this position so that I can follow my dreams of becoming an exercise physiologist. Like, what is going on here? I've got my pen under the table, like jamming it into my leg, doing anything I could to stay awake. And I'm just, I'm gone. Like, I can feel that I'm going to fall asleep. Somehow, I get the position. After that interview, the mm -hmm. guy probably felt so sorry for me. He's like, let's just give this kid a shot. Anyway, I get the role and I start working as this trainee student at this cardiac rehab facility in the hospital. A few weeks go by and I'm, every time I drive home, it's probably like a 40-minute drive or more, maybe a 60-minute drive in traffic, I'm falling asleep at the wheel. And I'm thinking to myself, what is, why am I so tired? Like, How is this possible that my eyes can shut, not only face-to-face -face in an interview, but while I'm driving my car? Surely I'd have this like safety mechanism in my brain that would just go, hey, you could die right now, stay awake. Anyway, I fell asleep a few times driving home over the next few weeks. And then there was this one day where I was driving through 
the, the cross city tunnel, this tunnel that brings me back to the eastern suburbs. And I wake up inches from the, the side of the tunnel wall. I've, I've drifted across a lane and I've had this like micro sleep. Mm. I slam back into my lane, windows down, screaming, music up, doing anything that I could do to stay awake. I finally make it through the tunnel. I pull over at Rush Cutters Bay, this little area outside of the tunnel. And I fall asleep in my car intentionally. I put my seat down, I shut my eyes and I wake up like two and a half hours later or something. Mm. As soon as I wake up, I call my parents, they're doctors. And I say, there's something seriously wrong. I need to go for a blood test immediately. I just fell asleep driving. I fell asleep multiple times over the last few months. It's time to get checked out. So my mom sends me for this long list of blood tests. She just stacks everything in. I mean, we were concerned. What kind of doctors are your parents? My mom's a general practitioner. And my dad is an eye surgeon or ophthalmologist. So my mom had you know, been sending people blood tests for years and she knew what to look for. But for me, she just said, look, let's just test everything. Let's just rule out sinister stuff. We didn't know what it could be at this stage, no idea. So I go to get my bloods done. They take vial upon vial of blood. Like I am dry by the end of it. And we get these results back, you know, just a few days later because we, we slapped an urgent sticker on it and it came back really quick. And most of my results looked relatively normal, but there was this one marker, this one biomarker that came back out of range, which was very strange for somebody of my sort of age and, and you know, health status, so to speak, right? And interestingly, this biomarker is not something that most GPs would test for, but my mom just threw it in there as just another Hail Mary. Let's see what happens. It's called your HbA1c. It's a three-monthly average blood glucose. So it's, it's sort of, it's this marker that tells you what your blood glucose control has been like over the last three months. Mm -hmm. And this number came back, not just a little bit high, but in the diabetes territory, right? I think it was 6.6% and you want it to be below 5.5%. So we were, that was the first red flag. We were like, why has this number come back so high? We better look into this a little bit further. Now the irony is my dad, who's an ophthalmologist, was at the time working alongside RPA Hospital, the diabetes clinic there, one of the best diabetes centers in the world. And he spoke to the professor there and said, listen, my son just got this blood result back. His HbA1c is a little bit elevated. What should we do? Mm -hmm. just, should we be concerned about diabetes? So they said, listen, go get another blood test and test for autoimmune antibodies, which are these uh, immune antibodies that essentially show up if your body is attacking itself. And there were the two main ones for diabetes that we tested were GAD, G-A-D, and IA2 which were markers of this autoimmune attack. And they're meant to be below 10. Mine came back in the thousands. Mm. So when you, get, when you get this result back of these two positive tests for these two autoimmune antibodies, but you don't have a family history of type 1 diabetes, your chances of getting type 1 diabetes are 25%. So I get this result back, we see these numbers, and we go in for a meeting with the professor, the endocrinologist, the uh, diabetes educator, and we sit down and they say to me, look, you've, there's a chance that you're going to get diabetes one day. It's one in four. It could be in five days, five years, or maybe not at all. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you this blood glucose meter and you're going to take this with you for the next two weeks. Then you're going to measure your blood sugar before bed when you wake up. 
before and after every meal, at random times throughout the day, just collect some data. Let's see what's happening and we'll keep an eye on this thing. Come back in six weeks, we'll reassess, we'll make a plan. So, you know. But that's not exactly comforting in light of your HbA1c result and the fact that you're falling asleep behind the wheel. Like that, you know, you're in a, you're in a sort of uh, acute situation in which you need to figure things out pretty quickly. Right, so at this stage, there was no treatment protocol. There was no solution or plan forward. It was just collect data, look for trends and patterns, and we'll figure it out soon. Like you said, I still felt like shit. I was still underweight. I was exhausted. I mean, the, the other signs, by the way, of type 1 diabetes or undiagnosed diabetes, they're called the four Ts. Thirst, excessive thirst. So waking up in the night to drink, you're drinking all day long, you can't stop drinking. Needing to urinate and go to the toilet multiple times throughout the day and the night. And all of these things are happening to me. Excessive hunger, weight loss, and exhaustion, right? So I was experiencing all of these things and I go home with this blood glucose meter and I start to test you know, prick my finger and I would do it at all the times that they told me I should do it. And there was this one morning where I woke up and they said to me, if you ever see a number above, I think it was 11, a random blood glucose above 11 or a fasting blood glucose above seven, call us immediately, come back into the clinic. So I woke up one morning and I saw a 7.7 and I was in complete denial I, t- I told myself, I convinced myself that it was a mistake. There's no chance. So I, I did log it down in this book they gave me and I carried on with my day. I, you know, went to the gym. I ate the meals that I would eat. I would check and the rest of the day was normal. I continued for weeks and weeks and then eventually it was time to go back into the clinic. So I'm sitting down with a diabetes educator and I show her my numbers and I say, look, this is the numbers that I've, I've got. And I was, I kind of like prompted her. I was like, I'm going to be fine, Right. You know, I've I've got mostly normal numbers here. She saw the seven. She said, that is an interesting, you know, number there. Let's, why don't we give you a new meter that we've just got? The accuracy is a bit better. It's a bit smaller. Keep tracking for another two weeks. So she goes out to the back room. She brings in this new blood glucose meter. And I'm sitting next to my dad and I'm across from her and she's opens the box and she's like, let's test your blood glucose now to show you how to use this meter. It's a little bit different. So she pricks my finger, squeezes out a little drop of blood, takes the sample, and then she's holding the device and she's waiting for it to show up with a number. And I just see her face just changes. And she looks at me and she says, when was the last time you ate a meal? And I said, oh, I had a piece of toast just before I came here on the way over. She said, I'm afraid to tell you, you've got type 1 diabetes. And that was the moment right there that I was diagnosed face-to-face with this diabetes educator, with my dad next to me who'd spent his career treating and, and diagnosing eye conditions for, you know, with people that had, mm-hmm. had type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes uncontrolled for years. And he was in complete denial. He said, there's no way. There's, that's got to be a mistake. Why don't you get an, a new meter? So she went out the back, she obliged, she came back in with a new meter. We went through the same process, pricked the finger, same result. My blood sugar was 16 at the time, which is about uh, maybe 350 or something in in milligrams per deciliter. So, you know, four times the normal range. So I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the most bizarre circumstances, sitting in this clinic that my dad had pretty much worked at for decades. 
with the team that knew him and knew me and it was just such a, a surreal experience. Like, you, you know the phrase, the world caved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you just know. not something you expect as a young, vibrant, athletic guy at the beginning of his life and his career who's used to, you know, doing whatever he wants, you know, that 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 like sort of youthful, uh, you know, sense of, of being, uh, mm-hmm. you know, unstoppable, right? And so you you suddenly, this this unstoppable energy that you have comes up against uh, an immovable force. Right. So your world changes overnight, but I think it would be good to talk a little bit about what diabetes is, uh, the differences between type one and type two. I think there's a lot of confusion mm. out there. Uh, misconceptions, certainly with respect to T1, uh, being incident to lifestyle decisions, uh, very different from from type two. So diabetes is basically, you know, your body's um, dysregulation of your ability to metabolize glucose in a healthy way, but it's so much right. more than that as well. So like, what is the clinical kind of way to describe this condition? Yeah, I mean, diabetes is an umbrella term for these multiple types that manifest in completely different ways, but the symptoms are the same. So they all share a common symptom, which is high blood glucose or hyperglycemia. But the way in which that hyperglycemia comes to fruition is through different pathways. So in type one diabetes, it's an autoimmune condition. So the immune system attacks and destroys the cells of the pancreas that produce insulin, the beta cells, right? Once those beta cells are destroyed, you cannot produce insulin. So you have to you have to administer it exogenously. Mm-hmm. So through a pen or through a pump. So every day for the rest of your life, you have to give insulin through either device with your meals. You have to give a basal dose before bed that sort of sits, or some people take it in the morning, but essentially the basal dose is this background insulin that's floating around for like 24 hours. And then you've got a mealtime insulin, which is like a rapid acting you know, if I wanted to say eat a bowl of fruit like I've got on mm-hmm. this table, I would have to look at this bowl of fruit, calculate how many grams of carbohydrates are in it, understand what my carbohydrate to insulin ratio is, do the math, wind up the pen and give that dose, right? Right. So what's interesting is that there are different types of insulin and different uh, ways in which you can administer right. that. Um, you're not wearing a pump. Like I, I know other people that have T1, they're wearing a pump like you you do this differently so i'm interested in why right right the pump is delivering insulin either drip feeding it on a basal dose so all day just dripping it out or if you want to eat a meal the same thing you just plug it into the little computer you hit the button mm-hmm. and it sends that insulin uh that sends a signal and then the insulin is administered into your body mm-hmm. so it's a different system to administer it, but the problem of going low is the same with both. I see. So it can still happen to anyone. It does. It's extremely common. And that's the one thing you want to try avoid is these terrible lows because acutely that is the biggest danger of type 1 diabetes. The the chronic high blood glucose is more of a long-term danger. That's something that causes the retinopathy, the blindness, kidney disease, nerve disease. But it takes time. It takes years to develop that. But in an instant, if you go too low, you can completely lose consciousness and end up in a coma. Mm. So going back to the definitions though, so type one diabetes, your body stops producing insulin because the beta cells aren't working. Now, most people get diagnosed in a way that was very different to my experience. Most people are rushed to hospital in ambulance, conscious or unconscious, and likely in a coma. Mm -hmm. 
with ketoacidosis. So the blood glucose gets so high for so many months unknowingly and kids will feel this immense thirst and then they'll start drinking soft drinks to try quench their thirst, which sends their blood glucose. Right. So they go to hospital with ketoacidosis. Whilst my experience was very different. And, you know, when I think about it, I may have been dealing with this pathogenesis unfolding for six to 12 months, but I think my lifestyle was holding, holding me from getting mm-hmm. diagnosed sooner. So type two, on the other hand, is not a problem with insulin production initially. It can be later, but initially it's an issue with insulin resistance. So the, the action of insulin doesn't work properly. So the role of insulin is to attach to the cells of your body. It's like a key that unlocks this gateway. So glucose from the bloodstream can enter the cells of your body because that's where we need that energy to go. Mm. So when you have type 2 diabetes, you develop insulin resistance. So the insulin isn't working properly, but your pancreas is still producing insulin. But eventually, over time, they can also experience pancreatic beta cell destruction or burnout where they stop producing enough insulin. So you can be you can become an insulin-dependent type 2 diabetic and in pretty much all cases of type 1, you're insulin-dependent. Right. So being insulin-dependent as a type 2 diabetic is the result of uh, long-term, you know, chronic uh, living with that condition that leads to that Correct. result. But I, it, it just feels like they should be. They should have separate names so that rich, people are not, not confused rich. about this. And then when I, you know, like often, you know, now because type two diabetes is on the rise, and I don't have the statistics with me right now, mm. but it's quite staggering. That's huge. Um, I've got some the numbers. The extent to which, yeah, people are are falling prey, uh, you know, to this disorder, and the number of people that are becoming pre-diabetic, it's really a metabolic disease, Absolutely. which distinguishes it from a pancreatic disorder right. that is type one. Right, exactly. The numbers are staggering. I think globally, and these numbers are from 2021, the International Diabetes Federation, or one of those organizations put out some numbers. I think it's 537 million people globally have diabetes. Um, 50% are undiagnosed, mm. 50%. So you've got this, silent, insidious condition that's you know, present amongst 50% of those numbers, they don't even know it, which is where I think the CGM could play a role. Right, and we'll get into we'll that. We'll get into that. There's, there's a lot of controversy around a that. Lot, and a I'm, lot. I'm looking for some clarity and I know you've thought a lot about that, but mm. let's put a pin on, in that for, for the moment um, and just return to you know, kind of the, the timeline here, which is you get diagnosed as a young person um, I'm interested in in what what you were told the prognosis is. Now we see all kinds of people being athletic and running marathons, and there's a whole type one you know professional cycling team where everybody you know it's like that, yeah. we there's a permissiveness or a sort of understanding that you can live an active lifestyle with this condition. Uh, was that communicated to you at the time, or did you think suddenly your life is over, as you know it? Right. Yeah. I'd say the latter. It felt like a life sentence initially. Um, I'm sitting in that room and the world caves in. It's just, I can't explain the feeling of life's over. It's, I'm done. Like I have no, the future was just so grim. Like the, the, even, it's hard to explain, but like the color of the world changed. Like the saturation was like pulled out of the environment. Everything, it was like gray. Um, so they told me that 
you can still live a great life, but my, your life expectancy is going to go down. You probably won't live as long. Your risk of cardiovascular disease is significantly increased. The long-term complications are very frightening. And they showed me this like caricature of a person who is poorly managed for multiple decades and they are blind. They've got their, they're on kidney dialysis and they're missing a limb. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like that's what I needed to see in that moment. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to, to attach your future to. They said that you can exercise, but it's very dangerous and you need to learn how to do it safely. And then they said, one of the most dangerous things about type 1 diabetes is the administering the insulin and getting the dose wrong. If you overdose, it can be a life sentence for real. You can, you can die, seizure, coma, the list goes on. So they actually sent me home without insulin. They said, look, keep monitoring for a few days. Let's see these trends and patterns and then we'll figure out a therapy, an insulin therapy to match your lifestyle because everyone's a bit different. So they sent me home and, I mean, that night was, that was dark. I mean, I cried myself to sleep. My family were, were an absolute mess, especially mm-hmm. being doctors and having an insight into this condition. They just, they knew what the potential complications were. And we all just were hoping that I wouldn't be another statistic, you know. So had a rough night. Wake up the next day and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do what the doctors told me. I'm going to track the, the, the next movements of my day and get some data of, of blood glucose and log my book. And, you know, I was begging for insulin therapy because I knew that it would make me feel better, mm-hmm. that my blood glucose would come back into the normal range, that I would probably start to gain my weight back. And I just want, I was like, please give me insulin. Like, I really want this. They're like, just be patient. We'll get it to you. So the next day after being diagnosed, this was the crossroads in my life. This was the game changer. So I remember eating breakfast. I ate, you know, a meal that I would eat back then. It was probably like oats and yogurt and banana or something. And I checked my blood glucose and it spiked up to 25, which is 450 in milligrams per deciliter, huge, five Mm. times normal range. And I remember seeing that number and just feeling so deflated. Like I I felt terrible in my own skin already, but then just seeing that number was just another reason to sort of hate this position I was in. Anyway, I I went uh, to the gym, which is what I would usually do. And I put my glucose meter away, smashed out a workout. And for those 60 minutes, I was just in my happy space. I felt amazing. I still managed to do a good workout, full body workout, you know, got a good sweat on for 60 minutes or so. I got out of the gym and I checked my blood glucose again, expecting to see the same number because at that stage that that I didn't, I didn't know that anything in your life, in the day-to-day activities of your life could influence your blood glucose, Mm -hmm. right? So I checked my blood sugar and I see that the number's back into the normal range. So it dropped from 25 down to about five. And I was blown away. I could not believe it. That was the, the first time that I felt this like little bit of hope. All of a sudden the color was coming back into the world around me and I felt like, hey, actually this is pretty powerful stuff. I can manage my condition potentially just by exercising. This is incredible. Right, like a little spark of agency that you yeah. could exert. What's interesting is Without insulin, without the you know insulin being the 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 molecule that opens the gate that allows glucose access to the cells, how does exercise provide that role in the absence of insulin? Well, this is what is so fascinating about the human body is there is another mechanism by which glucose can enter the cells of the body. 
I will say the caveat here is that because I was in my, they call it the honeymoon phase, which is such a ridiculous term for this phase. But when you're newly diagnosed, you may still have like three or 4% pancreatic function at that point. So I may have been producing just a little bit of insulin, right? So small amounts, but just enough. Mm -hmm. But the other mechanism is really where the magic is. So I mean, it's such a great question. Like, how did the glu- how did my blood glucose go from 25 down to 5? Like, wh- how did that even happen? So, as, as we said before, insulin acts like this key that opens the, the gateway to the cell. But it turns out there's another mechanism, which is called non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake. It's got a few names. Contraction-mediated glucose uptake, exercise-induced glucose uptake. But essentially, the act of contracting your muscles sends this message inside of the cell to send, it's called GLUT4, a, trans, a, a, um, a transporter, a glucose transporter that sort of resides inside of the cell. When you contract your muscles, it sends this cascade down into that cell and this little transporter translocates to the cell wall and acts as this gateway. So if, if anyone has prediabetes, insulin resistance or you know, type 1 or has high blood glucose, or I mean, in everybody, in healthy people too, it's the same mechanism. So you contract your muscles and you get these glucose gateways opening up, mm-hmm. which allows this free access for glucose to enter the cells, completely independent of insulin. So you don't have to, there's no insulin cost at all in that case. It makes sense uh, from a survival and evolutionary perspective to have this kind of backup generator, right? Like, hey, these muscles are contracting; they need glucose. Like, I don't know what's going on with the insulin exactly. over here, but like, we're going to have to, you know, get the supply going. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in a fight or flight situation or anything like that, where the muscles can't be dependent on wherever the insulin happens to be or not be in order to function. Exactly. And and the you know the unique thing about this this mechanism is that it's site specific. So depending on which muscle you contract is where that GLUT4 or glucose transporter will do its work. Mm. So if you only go to the gym and do calf raises and bicep curls compared to the person who does a full body workout or training all the major muscle groups, the GLUT4 translocation will be very different between the two. So if if you have diabetes and you want to get your blood glucose under control, a full body workout is going to be a, a way better way to open those gateways than just isolation work, you know, doing a bro workout. So that workout that I did was just so powerful for me because it gave me this sense of, you know, res- responsibility as, or agency, as you mm-hmm. said, but also a tool. This is my first tool that I figured out was like, I can do this. I can control my diabetes as long as I exercise every day, which became a bit right of a, yeah. it might be that might be overstating the it, case very much bit. so yeah. which i didn't realize <laughs> okay. i didn't realize at the time yeah. but i made some All big errors to do this right made some big errors after um that. at some point obviously you're you get on the you know insulin uh program and all of that um and you learn how to administer it responsibly and safely right. i'm sure there was a whole learning curve I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media.
Walk me through kind of the evolution of developing greater and greater agency through lifestyle choices, yes, with exercise, but even beyond that, that have kind of informed how you live with this day to day and, and sustain a healthy, active lifestyle. So life became a big experiment, you know, and I was, I was already trained and accredited as an exercise physiologist. So I had this understanding of the science and I knew about how the body worked, but I'd never walked the walk as someone, you know, living with diabetes. So I began to just test everything. And at this stage as well, I, I was still using the glucose meter. I didn't have a CGM. I've only had this for a couple of years and I've been living with diabetes for like 12 years now. So I was doing 15 to 20 finger pricks per day but I became obsessed with collecting the data. So I was just pricking my finger all the time. I didn't want an hour to go by without knowing what my blood glucose was, mm. right? And they'd offered me this technology, but I, I just, I wasn't ready to wear my condition on my body. You know, I was, I was in hiding for the first, I wanna say even a year. I did not want anyone to know that I had diabetes. I would go to the bathroom to give my insulin if I was out at a restaurant. I would never prick my finger in public. I'd go to the bathroom to do that too or go to my car or I didn't want anyone to know what I was dealing with. You know, I just, I wasn't, hadn't identified with my new being and my mm -hmm. new condition that I was going to be carrying with me for the rest of my life. And I, I, I don't want to say I felt ashamed, but I, I definitely felt icky about it, you know, and I know it was not my fault at all for getting it, but I wasn't ready to wear it confidently and proudly. So first year was hard, a lot of hiding it, but a lot of self-experimentation. And I would check, you know, my blood glucose before and after certain workouts. And I would notice that depending on the type of workout, the blood glucose response was completely different. Mm -hmm. And that was the mistake I made early. I mean, it was a blessing and a curse, but you know, that pivotal moment where I did that great workout and brought me back into range, in a way set me up for some failures because I saw exercise as this, you know, as a hammer basically. And everything, everything was a nail. Every time the blood glucose was up, got to hammer it. Mm -hmm. Right. But what I didn't realize was certain cases required a different tool and the hammer was not going to do it. Like I was trying to tighten screws with the hammer. Like it just, you, you need to find other tools. So, I mean, a couple of learnings that were that depending on the intensity of the exercise, you know, your blood glucose can actually go up. So, you know, for the first you know, week or two after, you know, doing that great workout, I would wake up in the morning and go for a fasted sprint session at Bondi on the soft sand. And I'd finish the session and my sugar would be up to like 20, which is the same blood glucose that it was when I ate that carbohydrate rich meal. And I was just so confused. I was like, well, hold on a second. I just used exercise in that case and it worked perfectly, but today it's made my sugar go up. And then I realized that caffeine, you know, from drinking coffee can stimulate adrenaline, which also you get this glucose output. So this, the high intensity sprint training, the caffeine in a fasted state early in the morning, I was layering these two things on top of each other and causing my blood glucose to go even higher mm -hmm. as the body has this ability to, to put uh, endogenous glucose or glucose that's stored in the body into the bloodstream through the liver. So I was turning this liver tap on unknowingly in the mornings and I would you know, wake up with a blood glucose that was normal and after my workout, I'd be in the 20s mm -hmm. again. So, I mean, just so many little failures and learnings along the way. Of course, nutrition. I mean, that was the next thing that I had to try tackle. And the way I sort of fell into the nutrition side of things was I just did a simple Google search. Just being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, what diet should I eat? 
or something, or like how to treat or cure type 1 diabetes with diet, which obviously you can't treat or cure it. But I landed, the first thing I landed on was, uh, was a paleo way of eating, which, you know, when you compare it to a standard Australian diet or standard American diet, it's a step in the right direction. Certainly. It's, and your diet leading up to that point was... Very standard. Typical, yeah. Right. I mean, of course, health conscious, but by no means, you know, whole food focus. Like, I would kind of eat a bit of everything. So I fell into this paleo way of eating and instantly some great results. You know, my carbohydrates per day were roughly, say, 150 grams per day. So not too, too low, but, you know, just right in that sort of sweet spot. Um, I focus on whole foods. I eliminated whole grains and legumes and dairy, but I was eating fruit and vegetables and mm -hmm. lots of meat and eggs and right. chicken. Lean meats, fruit, veg, right. no grains and no legumes. Right. So, and no processed foods, obviously, and no dairy. Exactly. Yeah. So, in comparison to, you know, just a typical, you know, person's way of just mindlessly eating whatever, obviously, you're going to have amazing improvements from that. Right. Yeah. And what I noticed was in the first, maybe, I mean, the timeline's a little bit blurry now, but within, say, four weeks or so, my insulin requirements had come down quite a lot. So, in the beginning... Um, you know, I was given this, I was told by the educator to give a basal dose of insulin, which is every day you're going to give this sort of large dose that's going to sit in your bloodstream for 24 hours. That dose came down by about 50 to 60% after a month or so on this paleo diet. So the basal had come down and then my other insulin, the short acting one with meals had also come down. So per unit of insulin, I could now metabolize more glucose, which was really interesting. So Again, another great tool. So I discovered exercise as this wonderful mm -hmm. tool. Now I've got nutrition. And at this point, I felt very comfortable with where I was. I was super happy with my diabetes management. My HbA1c was great, close to normal. Not quite there yet, but very close. And you were able to put weight back on and go out and live your active life in yeah. a pretty normal way? Yes, the weight came on rapidly and to the point where came on a little bit too quick. I got very fluffy very fast, which makes sense because I was essentially starving for those months because although I was eating a lot of food, it wasn't getting into the cells of my body. It was sitting in my bloodstream and I was either excreting it through the kidneys, urinating the glucose out, um, or it just wasn't getting, it was just building up in the bloodstream. So, you know, once you start taking insulin, which is a very anabolic hormone, you're going to gain weight extremely mm -hmm. quickly. And I got fluffy and I was doing a lot of modeling in my early 20s and all of a sudden, this, I mean, this was a hard thing to deal with because I was getting no work now because my body had completely changed. The modeling industry loved the skinny, you know, fashion-y, editorial-looking body and now I was really out of shape. Um, and in fact, there, there's a huge overlap with um, type 1 diabetes and eating disorders, especially in women. The stats mm -hmm. are crazy. Like 30 to 40% of women with type 1 diabetes develop an eating disorder. And I'm not surprised why, you know, it's... Well, the disease, the condition itself makes you like sort of hypervigilant about what you're eating. And then you're taking this on anabolic and it's creating weight gain. So right. it's not surprising. It's not surprising. It's going to have that you know, impact. And a, lot of, a lot of women intentionally don't take their insulin so that they can lose the weight. And then you can imagine what happens there to their blood glucose. Right. It's a slippery slope. And it's, it's, I've known a, a, many girls who have gone through this. It's really, it's horrible. And guys, and guys. I, I certainly, there was a period where I 
also developed some disordered eating. Right. Well, you're getting fluffy to use your word and you're like, well, I know how to fix that. All I have to do is cut back on this other thing. It's a lot easier than trying to, you know, regulate your dietary choices. And to add to it, if my blood glucose was in range, I would just, I would just skip meals. I would go, you know what? I'm in range. I don't want to go high. I'm so scared of these long-term complications of going high. I'm just not going to eat for like 10 hours Mm -hmm. and just stay in range longer. Then by the end of the day, I'm in a huge calorie deficit. I'm not nourishing my body with anywhere near the, the number of nutrients and macronutrients that I need. And then I'm going the other way. So that I dealt with that for a long time. And you know what? I did some damage for sure to my health in many ways. And again, just these little failures, I kept tripping over and figuring things out and dusting myself off. And I, I, I found my way back to a path that was really good for my health. Mm-hmm. But you know, the first year or two was extremely difficult. So you cotton on to this paleo diet and, and lifestyle and that seems to be working. Why not stick with that for the long haul? Mm, what happened? Question. Well, I sort of immersed myself in the diabetes community online and I, I became, you know, somewhat of a of an advocate for healthy living with type one diabetes and I, I was talking to people on Facebook groups and Instagram and all these things and people would ask me all the time for my opinion on certain ways of eating for diabetes. And one of the questions I kept getting asked was, what about keto? Why, what do you think of the keto diet for type 1 diabetes? And being someone who loves the self-experimentation, I found it hard to give an answer having not tried it myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to give my opinion on the keto diet until I've tried it. So I sort of dived into that. I started a keto diet and I was documenting it in real time on social media. I was posting about it on Instagram and I was waving the flag. I was an advocate. I was, I was raving about it because the first two months, again, my insulin requirements came down even further. My insulin um, to carb ratio was, even though it was a very low, low carb diet, but I was taking hardly any insulin and I was keeping this beautiful, just flat line in range. Everything looked Amazing. And what exactly were you eating? Like, what was the breakdown? What did that look like? So, I mean, 75% of the calories were from fat. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely did a paleo y kind of keto diet in terms of I kept a lot of whole foods, a lot of leafy greens, non starchy vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower. You know, I tried to keep it vegetable heavy. I wanted to keep fiber in there. Right. But, like, completely non-glycemic vegetables, right? Right, And and when you say 70, I mean, 75% fat. So mm. what, what, is that, what is that? Like you're putting, uh, you know, you're putting coconut oil in your coffee and- I didn't go to that extent. To, to saturated often. fat, like what, you know, what exact, how did you consume 75% of your calories in fat? So a lot of olive oil on salads with half an avocado, a piece of salmon, nuts and seeds on top, and an egg, mm-hmm. and then a big base of leafy greens, broccoli, cauliflower, those kinds of things. So big, like salad bowls with lots of fat sources and some protein. I was consuming a lot of coconut oil, uh, fatty meats, chicken, beef. Um, you know, I was eating a fair amount of saturated fat, but I would say I was doing a healthier keto diet than what mm-hmm. you do see other people. Right, doing. that sounds. That doesn't sound so bad. I mean, that in comparison to, you know, videos you'll see 
online right. of people just literally taking a bite out of a stick of butter. And, <laughs> <laughs> there's you know, something that guy. There's some, you know, wild stuff out there, right? But that's still a lot of fat, a lot of saturated fat, but had this amazing impact on your ability to to really flatten that curve right. and and manage your diabetic condition. And this is something that a lot of people with type two or any kind of metabolic disorder or just in general, um, uh, people are experiencing success with and it makes in terms sense. of how they feel. Right, yeah. and, and it makes sense as to why it works. You know, you've got this condition where glucose is something that's hard to metabolize and you're eliminating glucose from entering your bloodstream. So you're gonna stay in range for longer, which also means your requirement for insulin is lower, right? So it, it just makes sense. And for about two months, it was great. And I was telling everyone about it and I was recommending it until I hit a brick wall where I noticed that every morning my fasting blood glucose was a little bit higher and it would happen day after day, week after week for a couple months. And I was very persistent. I was like, I'm gonna ride this storm. I'm gonna see what happens. How, when you say until, like how many, how long were you into it when that began? So two months into the diet, I started to see my fasting blood glucose elevate. And then I stayed with it for about two months. So what was happening was my, my liver overnight was pushing glucose into my bloodstream, right? So remember I mentioned that glucose mm -hmm. tap. I was, that tap was on all night. And when the glucose was in my bloodstream, there was no way out. It wasn't getting into the cells of my muscles or anywhere else that it could bring my blood glucose back into the normal range. So I would increase that basal insulin, which is that background insulin, I would just give a little bit more each night until I'd find the dose that would stabilize me. But I, could, I just couldn't get it under control. So I, my basal was going up, my insulin, but my blood glucose wasn't coming down. So I was at this position where I felt like I was getting resistant to the insulin. It wasn't even working anymore, which is pretty frightening because that is the one tool that I need to keep me alive. I'll literally die without it. Mm -hmm. So during the day as well, my short-acting insulin doses were going up and it just wasn't working. And there was this one day where I was, I was actually on a photo shoot and the photographer was like, are you okay? Like, you just don't look vibrant. And I was, it's because I was dealing with a high blood glucose that I couldn't get under control. So before the shoot, I gave a large dose of insulin, checked my blood glucose two hours later, hadn't moved. So I gave another big dose of insulin, checked again, it, it was not moving. So... I got to this place where I was like, I think I'm actually resistant to the exogenous insulin that I'm administering, which is a it's pretty scary, scary. reality, yeah. right? And then that was where I kind of knew I had to shift gears. It was time to, to look into this, like what is going on? And this is where Simon Hill enters the conversation. Right, and what's interesting <laughs> is that you are doing everything that you think is right. The conventional wisdom out there for people that are contending with this condition is that carbs are the enemy and the best, most effective way to manage a diabetic condition is to eat a low to no carb diet to focus on fats and proteins. And this will allow you to kind of manage your blood glucose levels, which is effective until it's not, right? And I think what's pernicious and kind of beneath the surface here that we're gonna get to is this idea that that's the curative path, but in reality, it's quite pernicious because all it's doing is masking your body's inability to metabolize glucose because you've never you're not exposing you're not exposing your body to glucose um, 
So you're not actually dealing with the problem, you're removing kind of the external symptomology uh, because the minute that you do expose your body to glucose, you quickly realize like it's 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 completely incapable of doing it. So basically you're you're in this persistent state or you're kind of pursuing this path blind to, you know, kind of the reality of what's going on. And this journey that you've been on, and we've talked about this on my show before with other people like Robbie and Cyrus, et cetera. Um, there's a whole other way of looking at this mm. that um, you're soon to discover by dint of our friend, Simon. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you can achieve normal blood glucose levels and normal insulin requirements in the absence of carbohydrates in your diet, you're you're essentially just, it's a Band-Aid solution to a degree. It can still be a solution for some people because if you can maintain that long enough and you don't run into the same hurdle that I did, which I don't, which it happens to a lot of people. I've gotten dozens of messages over the years, but some people can keep that up for a long time. But that is just a, like you say, it's, it's you're, 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 you're just masking these, these symptoms, right? Because as soon as you reintroduce the carbohydrate or that trigger, you're going to see the real identity of what's going on. So whilst on the other hand, if you can achieve blood glucose control, that's normal with, with good insulin sensitivity and normal insulin requirements in the presence of carbohydrates, that is the true insulin sensitivity. Right. That is true uh, diabetes management. and robustness. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I was, I was posting online about the keto diet and type 1 diabetes and how to manage it and all this stuff. And, you know, Simon, he, he flicked me a, a Instagram stories of a doctor who had been at a conference and delivered a talk with these lecture slides. Was it Michelle McMacken? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So she had been talking about a plant-based, you know, high carbohydrate approach to managing diabetes. And I'd never heard of whole food plant-based at that point. I didn't actually understand there was a whole movement there. I, to me, it was just you know, paleo, keto, or just not That's low. interesting in and of itself. How would you not have even known? Didn't even know. Yeah, because uh, there's like a whole world there. I guess that's a larger conversation about how our information silos can, can, can work at cross purposes with mm. you know, exposing us to different ideas. Uh, yeah. I guess if you're in the paleo or keto, kind of wormhole, you're not hearing a lot about other options or alternatives. No, I, I literally had never heard of it. He said, so he sent me a message with these lecture slides and he wrote, have you considered, and he wrote WFPB. And I was like, w, what is that? I had to Google the acronym to even see what it meant. Did you and know Simon? I knew him from around Bondi. We had mutual friends. Like, got, you see him down at the beach or yeah, whatever. I just right. picture you got like, you know. We'd cross down <laughs> like working out to, you know. Ah, oh, that guy looks fit. Yeah, like we, we'd, <laughs> obviously we knew of each other and, and I knew him as the, um, the nutrition guy. And I knew, I, I didn't know really what his message was. Somebody, I thought he was a chef <laughs> to be honest. Because <laughs> a friend of mine was working with him and taking some photos and I saw photos of him with food and I thought he was a chef. Mm. Anyway, he introduces me to these lecture slides and I had a look at them and I read through it and I was like, wow, so there's another way. And this way has all the carbohydrates in the diet and they're claiming that the control is as good, if not better than these other approaches. I guess being the self-experimenter that I love to, to be, I'm gonna have to give this a crack. Mm. That contravenes everything that uh, you know, we kind of hear around how to manage this condition. Carbs are the enemy. Right. 
the solution can't can't reside in like eating a bunch of carbs to manage this. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. It does feel like mixed messaging, doesn't right. it? Right, and, and you know, people get really agitated and activated when you uh, propose that as an idea. Right. I, I mean, look, carbohydrates, depending on the context in which you have them, can be a trigger of high blood glucose excursions. That is a fact. That is true. But what they're not telling you is that the degree of insulin sensitivity that you have will dictate whether or not you can tolerate carbohydrates, right? So you, you need to be insulin sensitive. You need your, your insulin to work properly. And the way to achieve good insulin sensitivity is, number one, you've got to be a healthy body weight. Body composition matters. You need a fair amount of muscle on your body because that's the glucose sink. Those are the glucose sponges that soak up the glucose. The types of fat that you eat will impact your insulin sensitivity. So if you have a very high saturated fat diet and you're eating carbohydrates, which is the standard Western diet essentially, that is a recipe for disaster, sure. So if you add carbohydrates into that system in that context, you will see these glucose spikes and you'll blame the carbohydrate immediately because you'll just say, I ate the banana mm. or I ate the whatever it is, the candy, and my blood glucose went up. But what, what you're failing to see in that, in that context is if you swap those fats and replace them with unsaturated fats, lots of fiber, whole foods, that you can now tolerate those carbohydrates a lot better than in the context of high saturated fat intake. So mm. it's really, really mm -hmm. important to understand the different macronutrients and how they mix together and how, how they play. So you have a receptivity to trying this, to, to experimenting. Um, and I think it's worth noting that that is not unrelated to the grace with which Simon approached you. He didn't, he didn't ping you and like shame you or say you're getting it wrong or browbeat you. He just said, hey, maybe check this out. Like, I think that there's something about that <clears throat> that is worth noting because the way that we communicate in our various you know, dietary circles with the silos and the judgments and the owning of the other side and all that kind of stuff is mm. not really productive at all. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, Simon's just kind of very gentle, like, hey man, check this out. Mm. You're a scientist, here's the paper. I'm not telling you what to do. Like, hey, maybe maybe read this. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So the way he did it was gentle. He sort of just gave me this nice little gentle nudge in the direction of now you take responsibility, you do the reading and see where you end up. Yeah, and I'm not attached to whether you change or do anything differently, right. or even if you read this paper. And he didn't oversell it either. He didn't say, trust me, if you follow this diet, you'll have the best insulin sensitivity mm. and you can manage your diabetes way better than this. He just let me do the work. And I'm glad I did the work because where I've ended up is a great place. But uh, you know, essentially, I, I just decided that day that I was gonna dive into becoming fully plant-based and I was gonna let go of the keto, which was the other end of the spectrum. It was quite a... You decided that, but after experimenting though, you must have said, well, let me check it out and see if this is even effective for after me. After reading a little bit about it, mm. I mean, how else can you go plant-based without going fully? Like, Because I, I was already pretty much there because I was eating a paleo diet that was you know, 80% plants. Like I was eating a lot of plants already. Yeah. But you didn't have a like a bowl of fruit like that right oh, there no, no, sitting no. next to no, you. No, 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 that would, that, <laughs> that would, that would not be a, even in the house, no chance. Um, and just remember being paleo, you're not eating whole grains or legumes. So, you know, carbs were, I was, I wouldn't say I was fearful of them, but I was certainly not embracing them. And I, I, 
I had victimized them in certain ways myself because I'd seen, you know, sometimes I'd have these spikes and I, it's very easy to blame the carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. But I guess the decision to go plant-based, I, I was like, I'm just going to do it 100%. I could have edged there, sure. I could have just slowly taken out the salmon off that plate and then swapped it with whatever, beans, or, and then kept the eggs in and kept a bit of... But I just wanted to go full in mm -hmm. to see the, the impacts on my blood glucose management. Because I just remember... At that time, I was again in a, in a place of turmoil where my blood glucose control wasn't great. Right? At the end of that keto diet, my blood glucose control was not good. I wanted to fix it as quickly as possible. And you know, the exposure from high saturated fat keto diet to a low saturated fat, more unsaturated fats, high carb diet, I'm going to see straight away. Right. The difference. Yeah, your 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 numbers are gonna are gonna reflect the reality pretty quickly. Right, and I was I was petrified of eating carbohydrates at first. I thought I was gonna spike immediately. I hadn't eaten whole grains or legumes in like seven years, seven years with no mm. whole grains, because um, that's how long I was on the paleo diet for about seven years. And fruit. I mean, I started to add in a lot of fruit and I I, I accepted a couple of things. There were there were these two realities that I accepted. And I surrendered to, number one, I'm going to lose all my muscle because I'm not going to be eating any protein. <laughs> and number two, my blood glucose is going to be very high for a number of weeks probably. That's, that's what I thought was going to happen. Uh -huh. And what did happen? Blew my mind. So within a few weeks, my insulin requirements and my insulin sensitivity was the best it had been in a long time. So I, I, all of a sudden, my... My muscles were able to soak up the glucose again that was in my bloodstream. My insulin requirements went down and down and down. The insulin to carbohydrate ratio, which is an indication of your sensitivity to insulin, improved beyond what, you know, actually the best that it had ever been. So it was pretty good on a paleo diet, but when I removed the saturated fat and got it down to, you know, roughly 10% of total calories, up the unsaturated fats, I could tolerate a fair amount of glucose. So that, that ratio was improving a lot. Mm. I can almost hear the uh, outrage <laughs> of, of you know, the person who's listening to this, who is experiencing positive results on a keto diet. Um, so explain how you account for that. Like, why is this happening? Because it contravenes everything that I thought was true and false when it comes to um, diabetes. And when I say that, I'm, we're, we're talking about type two here as well. Like the experience that you're having or um, the, the experience that you're having would, would not be dissimilar for somebody suffering from type two. Right. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. yeah, very similar. The truth is you can, you can have good diabetes management on a keto diet. That is the truth. You can also do a keto diet that is healthier than the one that you see, like you say on social media, of a guy eating a stick of butter, pouring coconut oil and butter into his coffee and eating bacon and eggs all day. And a, you know, a carnivore style keto diet. You can eat a high fiber, whole food based ketogenic diet and you can achieve good diabetes management for a long time. But some people don't as well, right? So different individuals are gonna react differently to certain diets. And even in the case of those people that can keep that keto diet up for a long time, when they decide to reintroduce carbohydrates, even if it's just, you know, on a cheeky weekend or every now and then, 
the ability to tolerate glucose goes down mm -hmm. and it happens in healthy people. It happens in people with type two, type one. That is just how the human body works is you, your tolerance for glucose goes down when you were fully eliminated from the diet and you increase your saturated fat. So it's just nice for people to know that there is another solution. You don't have to, like some people will stick to this keto diet for years or decades, but they feel like a slave to their diet. And they feel like they have to follow that way of eating because it is treating their condition without even knowing about this other solution. So I don't want to tell anyone what to eat, but I just want to say there is another way that you can do this. And if you do remove saturated fat or at least limit, limit it to about 10% of total calories, you can regain that insulin sensitivity. Your carbohydrate tolerance will go up and you can eat the fruit. You can eat the banana. You can eat the grains and you, you're not always going to see this spike in your blood glucose. But you also seem to be achieving the goal, which is to uh, you know, be in a situation where your body can tolerate the carbohydrates, that you have that um, you know, robustness that is lacking on a keto diet because you're just avoiding that exposure. Yeah. I think a lot of people with type 2 diabetes in particular, they go on a low-carb diet, remove carbohydrates from, from the system, and they say that they have achieved remission or even reversal. They think they've reversed it because they come off the medication, their blood glucose goes back to normal, they wake up in the morning, their fasting glucose is normal, their postprandial or post-meal glucose is normal, the A1C goes down, they may come off insulin if they were de um, dependent on it for a while because they may still have some pancreatic beta cells that are working. And then they, they think, well, I've done it. And then all of a sudden, they add back the carbohydrates and it shows up again. So you've got, to, you've got to understand that, again, the absence of carbs from the diet are going to show you a blood glucose and insulin picture that may not represent the true robustness of the system, like you mentioned. Whilst in the presence of glucose, if you can handle glucose, you can handle carbohydrates and achieve the same numbers as the people who are completely eliminating the carbohydrates, to me, that is the true yeah, that, step. Yeah, yeah, then you're in not just remission, you're in a journey of reversal. Like, I mean, is that happen. overstating the case? It's not, it can, it can absolutely happen. If, if you have type two diabetes, you can't reverse type one, I'll just say that now. Once you've got type one, at this stage, there's no cure, you cannot reverse it. But if you have type two diabetes and you can tolerate carbohydrates, you have completely normal blood glucose, your pancreas is still working, you've got the beta cells, that would be reversal. So you can reverse type two in certain cases. If your beta cell function is burnt out and you don't produce insulin, that's a different story. Now you can't really reverse it. That's where staying on a low carb diet long-term can work for people because they don't produce insulin. Mm -hmm. So keeping glucose out of the system, you can keep them in range for longer. Right. So you adopt this plant-based, whole food plant-based approach, like how quickly before you started to uh, you know, perceive these results and realize that you were onto something pretty powerful? Maybe two weeks in, my numbers were back to normal. I mean, two, that sounds like, even when I think about it now, that's very fast. I couldn't believe how quickly it happened. And then it just slowly sort of, you know, plateaued in terms of the gains. It wasn't just linear and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it sort, of, sort of plateaued a little bit and I was able to maintain that. I'm five years in now and I'm maintaining the same insulin sensitivity. I'm eating, you know, hundreds of grams of carbohydrates. I didn't wither away and lose all my muscle. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my, I was very happy with my gym performance and my sporting performance and how I feel and just the whole list. You know, I, I, 
I, I was very, very nervous about a few things there. And thankfully I, I was I was wrong. Right, your ability to build lean muscle mass and, and you know, be the fit kind of, you know, exercising fiend that you are. Right, right? To, to maintain yeah. my strength and still, you know, you have this vision of, of you're gonna be frail and your bones are gonna to turn to dust and you're not gonna be, you know, <laughs> it's just not the case. It's know? so wild, I mean, I had, uh, Robbie Bavaro and, and Cyrus, the mastering diabetes guys on the podcast. Robbie is basically a fruitarian. Like uh, he just eats fruit all day long yeah. and he's managing his type one diabetes. And he, you know, he was very transparent about all his numbers. And, uh, and that just blows people's minds. Like the, yeah. the comments on the YouTube of that are like bananas. Like people just can't believe it. They think he's lying. You know, because it's like, what? Fruit is the thing you're supposed to avoid. You're supposed to avoid all these sugars. And here he is like doing the exact opposite. Like, how can this possibly be true? And the guy has like more energy than anybody I've ever met. I know. It's incredible. He, he literally eats upwards of a thousand grams of carbohydrate in a day. Some, some of his meals have like 300 grams of carbs just <laughs> in a bowl of fruit. And again, if people are wondering how is this even possible because you know so-and-so told me that fruit is terrible for diabetes and spikes your blood glucose, he's so sensitive to insulin. The insulin is working so well because his saturated fat intake is extremely low and he's a healthy body weight. That's a huge part of it. And that's something mm. we haven't really spoken about. But in, in, you know, people with type two diabetes, if you're trying to reverse or, or you, you reverse your, two, your type two diabetes, the number one thing is weight loss. And so a lot of the studies show that there's sort of this like key number of about 15 kilograms of weight loss can achieve a reversal or remission of, of this type two diabetes. So, so that's why, again, if you start a keto diet and you lose all this weight and all of a sudden you, your type two diabetes seem to be going away, mm-hmm. A lot of it may be attributed to the weight loss, mm-hmm. right? So that's, again, I'm not completely excluding these other dietary patterns if they can help people achieve weight loss because that, or, or let's call it fat loss, let's be a bit more specific because you don't want to lose muscle. We want to hold on. Muscle is very precious. Muscle is the sink or the sponge that soaks up the glucose. So we want to hold on to as much of that as possible. It's not just an aesthetics thing. It's, it's quite important for many aspects of health. But then losing body fat, that 15 kilograms for some reason is a number that people can achieve some really good results if they hit that. And and in addition to just this fear around carbohydrates uh, is a whole ideology around grains Mm. that you had to sort of deprogram yourself from. So talk a little bit about introducing grains back, whole grains, we should say, um, back into your diet and the impact of that. Yeah, I definitely demonized grains for many, many years. Uh, I thought that they caused inflammation, ruined your gut health, you know, would elevate your blood glucose levels. And it's because I was reading a lot of these paleo blogosphere style of, of, you know, the rhetoric there is that whole grains are, you know, they have lectins and poisons that are trying to kill you and, uh, you know, all this stuff. And I definitely fell for it in the beginning because it's a compelling story. It's a lot sexier than the the current story of the whole food plant-based one. It just... You know, as you mentioned before, it seems to not get the same limelight as these mm-hmm. really appealing, you know, carnivore grains are trying to kill you, plants are trying to kill you. That sort of storytelling. Well, those those stories are very reductive, and they're often delivered in a package that comes with a you know like a developed torso and a lot of sort of conviction, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we can get into that. Like, it is interesting. 
that the plant-based message doesn't track in the same way mm. because it's missing that that kind of um, uh, you know it's, it's not all tied up in an alpha bow that mm. is appealing to um, a young male, right. I guess I should say. Right? I mean, there are many developed torsos in the plant-based world sure. that are promoting the message, but mm-hmm. as you say, even in, in spite of that, it still doesn't quite get the the spotlight that I think it deserves. And I think a lot of it is to do with that alpha male, you know, rise of the liver king, that carnival craze of like the the hunter, right? Right. There's there's a whole story around uh, masculinity and a search for identity and the connection between that hunter kind of paleo primal, uh, what does it mean to be a man that uh, connects with a certain dietary affiliation that involves a lot of you know animal protein. Right. And when you strip that away and you're talking about whole food plant-based, it just sounds beta, soy boy, <laughs> you know, it's just a harder narrative. Hard to say. Uh, you know, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna track, you know, in an Instagram reel right. or in a TikTok in, in the same way, mm. which is problematic and is a longer conversation around like how you storytell and how you communicate. Mm. Um, but you as, you know, look, you're an incredibly fit dude. You came to this after your exploration in good faith in the paleo community and the keto community. and um, discovered this plant-based way of eating. And not only has it helped you manage um, your diabetes, it's, it's fueled your active lifestyle and you've become this sort of proponent, sort of an unlikely proponent, you know, of a way of living uh, that is more sustainable, healthier long-term um, without the compromises that some would have you believe are part and parcel of eliminating animal products from your diet. And when I when I made the transition to, to the plant-based diet, I've got to be honest, the, the animal ethics side of it was not my focus because I was very, very determined to manage my diabetes, get those numbers under control, try to maintain my physique as, the best way I could. I wasn't thinking about the planet or the animals. I've got to be honest. But as you dive into you know research and reading and documentaries and just the community, you get exposed to those other two pillars that now anchor me potentially more than the health side of this diet. Because I think a diet attached to values and ethics is much easier to maintain long-term. Whilst a diet attached to a little bit more... Vanity and vanity and uh, weight loss and aesthetics... Yeah, it's harder to maintain long term. So the the animal side of things for me is is absolutely huge. I mean, I always considered myself an animal lover, and I remember I got a. I I was when I was paleo, I was like making a chicken broth, and I had like the chicken carcass. I cooked up all the meat, and I had all the bones left over, and I was boiling it down, and you know, videoing and put on social media. And someone slipped into my DMs and said, "You know, you're you're an abuser. You're you you want to know where that chicken came from? Watch this." And then I got into this dialogue with this person. I'm saying, no, no, trust me, I love animals. I, you, I really, I love animals. You're wrong about me. You don't know me. I didn't know me. I was so, contra- I was contradicting, I was a, a hypocrite because I told myself I loved animals and I, I, I did, but I was eating some of them. Mm-hmm. And I loved my dog, but I was eating the other animals who feel the same pain as my dog, suffering the same way as my dog 
and arguably are as intelligent as my dog. So, you know, I just didn't, I didn't see it until I started eating a plant-based diet for health, got exposed to these other two pillars. And then before I knew it, I saw some things that you just can't unsee. And I, yeah, I mean, that holds me now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, holds me together. Yeah, my, uh, my journey was not dissimilar. It started from a kind of vanity and health perspective. I didn't feel good. I didn't like the way that I looked. And the, the ethics and the kind of environmental considerations came much later, but now are much more, they're on a, they're on a parody with the, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a lifestyle that checks all the boxes, right? You can, you can be more gentle on the planet. It's more compassionate towards our animal friends. It's actually in the best interest of our health. Like it's almost as if nature designed it that way. Right. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and it's interesting to, to inter, you know, kind of be on the receiving end of all the mental gymnastics that go into rationalizing uh, and, you know, these other choices like, oh, actually, you know, if you eat meat, you're part of the solution. And mm. uh, the way to save the planet is is more pasture, you know, more, m more cattle pastures, et cetera, um, that really don't hold up under mm. close scrutiny, right. which is a whole other podcast. I don't wanna go too far down that rabbit hole, but, mm. um, I think it gets confusing in the influencer space uh, for uh, for people who are um, in a position to be easily kind of massaged or, yeah. or manipulated away from the truth. Oh yeah, absolutely. You see it now so, more than ever. I think that narrative has grown a lot. And I think people use it as an excuse. I know a lot of, like, let's be honest, most alpha men who are eating meat today aren't hunting it themselves. They are paying somebody to kill the animal for them. In what world does that make you a man to pay you know, for this industry to exist so that you can eat meat? I just don't see that as a masculine characteristic. I mean, I feel like I feel more of a man now choosing not to partake in something that goes against my values. To me, that is a stronger, a stronger move than to go, hey, I'm only going to eat meat, but I'm going to make sure that that person grows the animal, feeds the animal and kills the animal for me. I just, you it's, know. It's more masculine and takes more courage to take a hard ethical stand that contravenes a socially acceptable behavior and to do it out of compassion for the, the souls that can't speak for themselves, like to be a caretaker, um, to be a protector. Mm. Uh, but that is a harder, once again, like a harder Hard kind of, you know, narrative to to spin. Mm. Um, but I think it's people like yourself who who hold themselves out as an example. It, you know, that's that's how you kind of um, create change in yeah. in this narrative. And I think the era of of you know activism is a tricky thing. Like you need all kinds. You need people who are who are you know on the far edge and and uncompromising and um, speaking truth to power. And then you have people like Simon who are a little bit more gentle and um, all those different voices have different ways of connecting with people. Uh, but I found much like Simon that a lot of the, the sort of tools used by the animal rights and vegan community not to work for me and mm. I think are failing in general and it's, much better to be 
an example, like a healthy, vibrant living example of this lifestyle to attract people who are curious about that mm. and to allow them in without judgment to have a dialogue about what that might look like for them. That seems to, it's a slower yeah. change, I think, but um, yeah, I mean, I the, think more effective. I think the, the sort of a more aggressive advocacy, so like so the example is the guy who sent me the message saying, you tortured that chicken, blah, blah, blah. Right. That doesn't make Didn't you, work for me. Yeah, that's not going right. to, you, you know, make you feel like you want to make that change. Right. It wasn't productive. It's and going I, to make you defensive. Correct. And, and it's I decided. to trench you in that. Yeah. Yeah. I ahead. decided not to be that guy mm -hmm. going forward, even though I want to say that to so many people and I know it's true. What's true is not as important as what is productive right. if you want to move the needle. Talk a little bit about overcoming your fear of suddenly sort of dying on the vine. Like if you're going to eat only plant-based protein, well, that protein is inferior and it's certainly um, going to be substandard compared to the way that I was eating before. Like how have you, um, you know, how has your your fitness changed or or your gains, you know, have they been compromised? Like how does, what does that look like? The first couple of weeks and months, uh, I did feel a bit different. Um, I think I lost a little bit, bit of weight though, because naturally when you adopt a whole food plant-based diet, because the calorie density of the diet is so low, you are probably going to lose some weight, which is pretty awesome if you're somebody who's overweight and wants to lose weight in a way that's kind of effortless in, in that you can eat you know, large volumes of food and not have to count your calories and worry too much about mm -hmm. it. So I lost a little bit of weight and I did feel a little bit weaker in the beginning. And that's when I started messaging Simon. I'm like, mate, I need your help here. The muscle's going, I feel a bit weak. And I, I wasn't pretending everything was perfect straight away. And he said, look, you need to eat more calories. What are your protein, you know, what are you eating at the moment? And I'd never, ever had tofu or tempeh ever in my life. So he introduced me to those two foods, which are now a staple of my diet. I eat soy foods every single day. Another myth that we can bust another time. But mm -hmm. I, I had to learn what were the protein replacements to make in my diet. You know, if I was, take, I was taking out, you know, fatty cuts of meat and steak and chicken, eggs, fish, what am I going to add back in? And Simon helped me to, to develop sort of not a meal plan, but understand how to how to manufacture that bowl every time I sat down to eat. Like, what are you going to put in that bowl that's going to give you all the nutrients and the protein and the macronutrients that you need to still perform, play sport, build muscle? And I've gained probably, uh, you know, a few kilos. So, of what I like to think is lean muscle. I definitely, right. you know, didn't just blow up. So, tofu, tempeh, beans, lentils. Right. And the like, right? And protein what all, supplement. <laughs> what about all the lectins? <laughs> They're are they, everywhere. Are they, are they destroying? Are, <laughs> well, they, are you are you toxic from all the lentil? Well, from all the, the the lectins? Well, it turns out it's easier to destroy lectins than it is for lectins to destroy you. Okay. And all you got to do is cook them, uh -huh. or soak them, or both, and you're going to pretty much remove most of them. Right. <laughs> Nobody's eating raw beans. Well, no, I don't know many people know. And so you know, you this, say, you don't the, the idea. This whole lectin. I mean whatever it's a whole other like <laughs> you know but it is a it's worth spending a minute to bust that myth i know because there are a lot of people who are afraid of lectins yeah i mean the way simon put it to there's me there's one person who's responsible for yes. that isn't but, that incredible you know, though like yeah. hats off to that marketing team that one person just completely changed the diet of tens of millions of people with one book I don't even want to name him. We don't, we don't, don't need either. to get airtime. Yeah. Okay. But Simon explained to me, he goes, look, 
Lectins are destroyed when you cook them. If you look at epidemiological studies of the longest living populations with the least amount of chronic disease, they eat arguably the most le- uh, lectins. You know, they beans are a staple of their diet. So, and just to tie it back into diabetes, those same populations, who Dan Buettner calls the blue zones, right? Yep. Not only do they eat a lot of beans and lectins, they have quite a high carbohydrate diet and they have the lowest amount of type 2 diabetes because their body weight, their healthy body weight, they're active, they move a lot, they've got wonderful bonds and connections with family and community, they enjoy their life, enjoy what they eat, and the last thing on their mind is, are those carbohydrates going to make me fat mm-hmm. or are going to cause diabetes? It's just, we, we invented this problem because people want to point the finger at something to blame for the way they feel today. Right. And it's always very reductive. It's like, this is the one thing right. that you need to remove or whatever. And you know, I appreciate the nuance and the complexity with which you describe your condition, like saying, it's not just any one of these things. And if you do that, yes, this will happen, but then you have to worry about this. Like our physiology is complicated. Diabetes mm. is complicated. Nutrition is super complicated. And anybody who tells you this is the solution that fits all and you just have to do one, this one thing or remove this one thing, right. I would be very wary of. Yeah, that, that's the red flag. If somebody has the solution, to a, to a problem that you didn't even know was a problem. So they prob- probably invented the problem and then sell you the solution. You know to probably look for other people to right. bounce some ideas off, that's a problem. Um, which leads us to CGMs. So let's spend a few minutes talking about this. Obviously, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor is a life or death, very important um, piece of technology that's instrumental to any diabetic's life in order to simply survive, right? You have to be monitoring um, your levels all the time. It's, a, it's crucial, uh, but we're in a very interesting moment in which we're seeing the, the pioneering, the innovation of all kinds of technology um, that's connecting the everyday person with what's happening in their body uh, in real time, whether it's your whoop strap or your aura ring. And now um, these companies where um, you could do blood work and they you know, give you in-depth analysis around that. And of course, an added piece here is the CGM for the first time ever being available to everyday people uh, through various companies. And this allows anyone to wear one and to monitor their own blood glucose in real time. There's an argument that this is a good thing because anything that connects a person to what their body is doing is is knowledge and knowledge is power. Um, But there are also many people in the diabetes community who are upset about this and and are concerned about, you know what this means, right? So, so talk me through like your philosophy on this because I'm I'm actually trying to f- figure out where I stand on all of mm. it. I am too, to be honest. I've given this a lot of thought, obviously. Um, as somebody who wears a CGM, as you mentioned, for purposes that relate to keeping me alive, um, it is a little bit funny seeing people wearing them on the streets who essentially don't need it. It's more of a want. It's more of a fashion accessory or a a badge of honor to show how much they care about investing in their health, which is something to commend in some ways. 
You know, if you care about your health that much that you're willing to wear a device that was invented for people with diabetes, you've got to sort of take your hat off and say, okay, well, you obviously care about your health, good on you. But whilst knowledge is power, if you don't understand or know how to interpret the data that you're collecting, I believe it's kind of useless. And I think that people are falling into the trap of wearing a CGM to collect data without knowing exactly what it means or what caused certain fluctuations in their blood glucose levels. And then again, pointing the finger at something that may not be the actual cause of that issue. Mm. And I'm seeing CGMs as a way for people to justify low carb diets or keto diets. Again, it's not giving you that whole picture. It's only telling you what the symptoms are, which are those little fluctuations in blood glucose, but it's not telling you about your insulin sensitivity. It doesn't tell you about do you have uh, you know, fat building up in cells that it shouldn't be, which means that insulin isn't working properly. It doesn't tell you that stuff. So, you know, people are, the problem is people are demonizing foods off the back of CGM use. It's happening. They, they, they're eating a carbohydrate and saying, see, look at that. There's my blood, blood glucose spike. It was because of mm-hmm. X. Yeah, it gamifies the whole thing where the goal is to flatten that thing as much as possible, right. um, which is gonna lead you to making dietary choices that might not have the best long-term um, right. results, right? Right. Uh, without that education piece. I think the education piece is super important and I'm not sure that it's quite in place. Um, the contrary opinion would be like, listen, I wore one for two weeks and I learned a lot. Like I had no idea that this food did this or when I don't sleep well, for example, that was something that I learned after you know playing around with it for a little bit. Like, holy shit, like when, I don't, when I'm like not rested, like it's all over the place. Right. Like that was something I didn't realize or fully appreciate or certain, um, uh, you know, like certain foods are acting in a way that I I wouldn't have expected. Like when I eat a banana, it does spike higher than I would have thought. Like, okay, I can file that away. I'm not gonna make a big deal about it, but it's a data point. But the the importance of that data point is only in correlation to a whole other world of understanding and nuance that really isn't part and parcel of what that whole thing is about right now. And is that data point clinically meaningful? Right. That's the thing Who that cares? I'm- right. Like, and, and there's, exactly. a, there's a kind of a weird shaming. Oh, I had this spike. That's bad. Right. Is but, it bad? But we don't know. But right. what we do know is there's studies looking at HbA1c, uh, you know, which is that average three-month glucose level um, in normal healthy people over, you know, thousands and thousands of people, big epidemiological studies and, and even randomized studies. But there's a clear inflection point. It's like a hockey stick. So the idea that the flatter, the better- means you're going to have less health complications, less chronic disease, you're going to live longer. It's not actually, I'm not convinced that is true right now today, Mm -hmm. especially looking at this inflection point at around, I think it's about 5.5%, the HbA1c. Whether your A1c is 4.1 or 5.5, your risk for chronic disease is pretty much the same. But when it starts to go outside of that normal range, then you're going to see some complications and your risk might increase. So if you're wearing a CGM, because you're gamifying and you want to be the flatter, the better, I'm not convinced that that is an evidence-based approach. And I'm not convinced that those spikes, quote-unquote spikes, that you're seeing are clinically meaningful or even relevant in in, in your overall health. Right. Well, I think one of the problems is that the people that are signing up to wear a CGM are not the people who actually would benefit from having one. 
because we're in, as we mentioned earlier, like there's a massive rise in um, metabolic disease right now. Like there are so many people who are either pre-diabetic or inching ever so closely towards that, mm. who would benefit from understanding how haywire their glucose regulation is. But those are not the biohackers. <laughs> the biohackers are probably fine, right? Like right. they don't have to worry about it. Um, but to the extent that there could be a better way to deploy these CGMs right. as a tool in the toolbox of stemming the rise of type two diabetes and pre-diabetes because by 2030, something like 50% of Americans are expected to suffer from this. Like this is a massive mm. problem, right? Mm. And here's something that could kind of help people earlier as they're, as they're nearing that to understand that they're at risk. I think, exactly. I, I think there's a benefit there. Definitely. Secondarily, you have on the far other end of the spectrum, elite athletes who are using super sapiens and really understanding how nutrition impacts performance. And they're able to extract really valuable da data, especially in the endurance space. Um, you know, How do you get through an Ironman in high humidity and hydrate and yeah. keep your glucose you know, stable, all that kind of stuff I think is interesting at the cutting edge of athletics. But, right. but that's a whole other you know, world, right? That's different from what we're talking about. Mm. Um, so, I see your I see your point, and I think it's I think it's very valid. Um, the other question I had is because I've heard this because I've talked about CGMs on the podcast before, and and people from uh, the diabetes community who who get sort of agitated about that um, have led me to believe like is there like a shortage of these? I mean, certainly like if there's only so many CGMs and there are people for whom wearing one of these is life or death. I would rather those people have them than you know the biohackers out there who are just noodling around with it. Right. Um, and there's a, there's a an expense thing too. Like, right. how does that work in? If more people are using them, do we reach a certain scale where they become cheaper and more affordable to the people that need them, or is there a scarcity of these devices altogether that make it important that um, we be conscious of that if we're going to you know try to mm. play around with one? Rich, I don't know the answer to that. I understand that some people who, are, who have diabetes uh, may not be able to get their hands on them because like you say, they're attached to the arm of somebody who's a, you know, a, a gym goer who just wants to use it as a fat loss tool, which I don't believe it is. Um, I haven't seen, I don't know anyone who doesn't have a CGM because there's a shortage of them. In Australia, it's subsidized. So mm -hmm. the government pays the bulk majority of, of that, that fee. It, was only, it only came into um, use, I think it was a, maybe a, a year ago now or less, actually just a few months, where it used to be like $5,000 a year to have one and now it costs maybe 10 bucks a sensor. So mm -hmm. it's much, much cheaper. So it's affordable now for people with diabetes in Australia. I don't know about in the US. I have heard that though, that people can't get their hands on them. But then the other argument, as you mentioned, is the supply demand. And if you, if you can increase the scale, does it become cheaper for everybody? But I just don't know that these companies producing them are there yet to create. Well, if know, we look at the price of insulin, we can, <laughs> oh my God. We can, we can predict right. you know, how that might play but, out. But you know, just going back to one other utility that I can see a CGM working is, imagine if we put a CGM on the people who are high risk, right? So you go to your doctor, your doctor sees that you're high risk, maybe it's for family history or it's to do with your BMI or waist circumference or whatever other metabolic conditions you have. 
you might even have diabetes unknowingly and we could diagnose a large amount of, of people with diabetes just by using the CGMs, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of the people who are undiagnosed aren't visiting their doctor. They're not tracking any data whatsoever. So they're walking around with, with diabetes, not knowing it, which is a silent killer, essentially, increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease and all these other metabolic issues. But if, if CGMs were accessible and cheap and everyone wore one, then we're probably going to diagnose uh, uh, you know, millions and millions yeah, of people. Yeah, and there is something about seeing it on your screen right after you eat something like, wait, you mean when I do that, this happens? Right. Like, I didn't know that. That creates a connection with your body and also um, provides that sense of agency. Like, yes. oh, but when I do this, that that then this happens. Like, oh, cool. Like, uh, you become much more engaged with yourself. Um, Definitely. And that can then lead you down a path of being more engaged in other areas. Like once you experience a certain positive result, then you're encouraged and motivated Absolutely. to you know, explore further. Yeah, right. it's a kind of wearing like a step tracker. Right. I mean, that simple yeah. data input of how many steps did I do today may make you go to the gym and might make you choose a healthier meal. There's so, it, it snowballs. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are cases where I can see it being very beneficial. I just worry that we might be... Uh, misusing it at the moment. I'm not sure that. I'm not going to stamp. Yeah, no, I, I, you know. I understand that. And mm. I do, like I said, I do think that there is a lot of room for improvement in the education piece mm. because it isn't as simple as like, keep it flat. No, definitely yeah. not. It's not that simple. <laughs> it's very complicated. But the other right. thing is like, if you're only doing finger pricks, like I was for many, many years before I had the courage to wear, wear a device. Um, and I say courage because I, didn't want to have this physical device attached to me 24-7 that represented my condition. So I was doing these finger pricks every single day, but you're only getting a little snapshot of this very dynamic system that's in flux all the time. So if I did a finger prick at 10 a.m. and the next one I did was at 3 p.m., I have no idea what happened in between those hours. Did my mm. blood glucose rise very high and come down? Did it stay flat? Did it go low and come back? You just don't know. So the data that you get from the CGM as you say, you pick up your phone and you can see in real time these little dots, you know, in graph form. You can see the trends and patterns. You can learn, you know, at this time of day, naturally my blood glucose goes up, you know, because in the morning you've got cortisol flowing and your blood glucose will kind of rise. And at this time of day, it naturally goes down and you just, you learn so much in real time. So that, that is the beauty of the technology. It's amazing technology. One of the other things I learned using it is how my body responds to different uh, versions of time-restricted eating and, and intermittent fasting. Um, and I went through a period where I was kind of doing this one meal a day and I would eat it too, I would eat like a big dinner, but I would do it late at night and then watching what would happen to uh, my blood glucose over the period of when I was sleeping was wow. like very surprising. What did it do? Tell me. Well, it would just, it would like drop and then it would like spike at like two in the morning. And that was typically when I would like wake up, you know, it was, and Maybe. I was like, wow, this is like wreaking havoc on me. Like right. I wouldn't have thought that. And I since have realized like, oh, actually when I eat smaller meals throughout the day, I have better results. I have more restful sleep. I don't have this, you know, strange looking graph that happens in the middle of the night. Right. And I could feel it, but being able to match what I was experiencing with those data points, you know, helped convince me that, you yeah. know, I needed to like do things a little bit differently. That's very interesting. I mean, that that's a phenomenon that happens to people with type one a lot is if you have a, a very large dinner close to bed, mm -hmm. 
especially if it's packed with a lot of fat because that slows down gastric emptying, so the rate at which the food leaves your digestive system, enters the bloodstream, mm. and carbohydrates, right? So you basically, you're slamming your foot on the brakes, you've got all this food in your stomach waiting to digest, and then like six hours later, it starts to enter your bloodstream, and you can have these massive spikes like mm -hmm. six hours later. The classic example for people with type 1 is a pizza. It's just the one food that I don't know anyone who's figured it out because it's got a lot of cheese, saturated fat, refined carbohydrates, big serve. You eat that, six hours later, your blood glucose spikes. And by that time, the insulin that you gave for the meal is long gone out of the system. So it's this mismatch between the rate of glucose entering the system and the rate of which your insulin is working. Well, now it's gone. So I never thought about that though in people without diabetes. And I'm actually really surprised that that's mm. the case. I would not have predicted that. I would have thought that your pancreas would would uh, handle that naturally you now, know now you're scaring me no 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 no, no. <laughs> i'm not saying anything yeah i'm not diagnosing anything right here but yeah it's very interesting well i don't do that anymore okay um but i'm interested in whether you've played around with as an experimenter with intermittent fasting or time restricted eating and and how that kind of operates yeah. as as a type one yeah absolutely i've played around with everything yeah. at this point i think that, that um the, the fasting is, is a really good tool. I find it, you know, it makes it a lot easier. If you're in range, if your blood glucose is in range and then you aren't adding these inputs to the system, it could be easy to stay in range. The problem that I was running into was similar to you. I was eating meals that were too big. I was so hungry by the time it was, you mm -hmm. know, time to break the fast that I was overeating the, the, the volume of the meal, which delays the gastric emptying. And then there was that mismatch, as I mentioned, between the insulin and the glucose. So... I, but I, I think I just need to learn to sort of scale back the size of the meals and it's definitely a good tool. It can absolutely work. And some people just like, you know, some people just aren't hungry in the morning. You know, I like to train fasted. I don't want to eat a big meal before I, before I train. So it, it works practically for lots of people to fast until you're hungry. It makes sense. But you haven't found like a specific protocol that works for you. I haven't. I, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't played around with it that much, but for me, when I do the fast... I, I, I backload my calorie intake. So I'll fast in the morning mm -hmm. and eat more from sort of noon onwards. But I know people who do the opposite and they front load their calories and they get some pretty good results right. with that. So yeah. I think that it definitely does matter the protocol that you choose and what time you decide to do your fast first, your eating window. Um, I haven't tried the, the front loading yet. So maybe you're enticing me to do another experiment. The front loading, yeah, it's like, I just, I, I don't wanna wake up in the morning and eat a, eat a bunch of food. Same. I wanna go out and train right away. Right. Um, if I'm training really hard, I can't always do a fasted workout session in the morning. Right. Um, because that will impair my ability to do it the next day and the next day and the next day. You're always like, you're eating not for that session, but you're kind of eating for the following day. Right. Um, in order to recover and repair. Um, but in general, if I'm not training super hard, yeah, like just get out and get it done first thing. Is that including? Rather than eating a huge meal right when I wake up in the morning, like right. I just never want to But do you don't that. have to do it that way. What you could do is do your fasted workout. So what time would you do that workout? Is it early? Know, seven, seven, eight in the right. morning. So yeah. seven or eight in the morning, you do your workout, you're home by nine ten. that's when your eating window can begin. So it's mm -hmm. like a post-meal breakfast. You can do that sort of maybe it's 10 till four, I don't know, 10 till whatever. That could be your eating window. But again, if you love food and you don't have metabolic issues and you don't need to be 
adding all these tools into your life, then perhaps you don't have to do it. Yeah, you know? it's 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 just it's a it's what's in vogue right now. Like, what is right. your protocol? Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, my protocol is enjoying my life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, which kind of brings us to I want to I want to spend the last part of our conversation talking about um, good good practices for just eating um, a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Like we talked a little bit about the protein, but you know, common misconceptions or confusions around things like omega-3s and vitamin D and B12. Like how are you making sure that you're not deficient? Like how do you think about these things in terms of not only how you function as a fit, active person, but also um, long-term, like how are you eating to sidestep, to not only manage your diabetes, but also, sidestep heart disease, which is a risk factor for your condition um, and to prevent cognitive decline and all the other kind of downstream um, things that you know we need to be thinking about sooner mm. rather than later. The way that I've constructed my dietary pattern is the, the front of mind for me, the most important thing, the most important principle is diversity, plant diversity. I need to try to get as many different unique plants in there as possible because they all come with unique nutrients. Some have protein, some have carbs, some have fat. I just need diversity there and also for gut health, right? If you're just sticking to three or four vegetables, um, I would argue that your microbiome health is probably not right. as robust. Right, Tim Spector, 30 plants a week. Right. Which should be really easy, actually. Like if you're actually eating a robust, diverse, whole food plant-based diet, you're probably getting yeah. 30 different plants a day. I would say so. Yeah, I think I could do that in a meal sometimes mm -hmm. even. Um, so plant diversity is key. When I'm making that plate or bowl, I'm thinking of the three macronutrients, but I will say that I have to think about those because I'm living with diabetes. So every time I make a meal, I have to eye off that plate and understand how many grams of carbohydrate are in the meal, how many grams of protein, how many grams of fat, because the interplay between those three macros will influence the dose of insulin that I have to give. And I, it took me years of learning how to understand what's in the foods and counting the carbohydrates, you know, because I, I would, in the beginning, I would have a food scale. I would weigh every single ingredient that went in. I'd plug it into an app. It would spit out, you know, the information regarding the macros and the calories, and then I would give my insulin dose. Thankfully, now I'm at the point where I can just look at it and understand mm -hmm. what to do. But I want to try get 30, 30 grams of protein per, per main meal. Right, and I get that from tofu tempeh, legumes, you know, beans, chickpeas, um, lentils, some nuts and seeds. Um, I'm trying to eat carbohydrates at all my meals as well, and I like to get it from whole grains. Um, and then a big, big base. This is where the volume comes. I can get my volume that fills me up from the lower calorie density, you know, nutrient dense, leafy greens, cruciferous, non-starchy vegetables. Um, if you stick to that and you eat three meals a day, you're pretty much going to be good. But if you really want to bulletproof it, you know, I'll take a protein um, supplement after workouts just because I enjoy it. I actually like the flavors and I can make a smoothie or, a, you know, like a sort of like protein ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. And that's the enjoyment. That's the enjoying life factor that you just mentioned. Like for me that people say, oh, it's, it's, it's processed and I don't care. I like the way, I like the taste. It's not bad for you. And it helps me hit my protein targets. So you're getting maybe an extra 30 grams. Yeah. So you're looking at, I don't know, 
100, 120 120 to 150 sometimes. Mm -hmm. It depends. Sometimes I'll have two scoops over a day or I'll have an extra serve of tempeh, you know. So I'm not not counting and I'm not being granular, but roughly 30 per main meal, maybe a snack and maybe that protein shake gets me approximately 1.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, roughly. And how do you think about omega-3s, DHA, DHEA? There's a lot of right. discussion around that and whether you can adequately meet your body's requirements on a plant-based diet. Look, I I try to get it from food as much as I can. I eat a lot of whole flax meal, hemp seeds, chia seeds, um, but I also take a supplement to, again, bulletproof those those nutrients. And, and I'm not afraid to take an essential, it's called essential aid. It's the one that I like to take. It's called, you know, Simon's uh, oh, help formulate a meal. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I take that every day. It's got B12, vitamin D, algae oils for those, um, instead of fish oil, you take the algae mm-hmm. oil, same thing. Um, and yeah, that's my daily, my daily dose. I just take that and I bulletproof my diet and I do blood work very frequently and I've no issues, I'm healthy. And when people come to you and say, uh, tell me about your diet or um, you know, how are you doing what you're doing? Uh, what are some of the misconceptions around not only uh, you know, eating plant-based as a type one diabetic, but um, just life as a T1 diabetic in general and also being this kind of like you know, fit, person who likes to train like what are some of the things you would like to not necessarily correct the record but you know sort of misconceptions out there around um how you're eating and and how you're living well i mean the main misconceptions are and most people have seen these floating around on the internet is that you need to eat animals to get your protein which you don't so people's major concern is where am i gonna get my protein is there enough protein in plants um, and yes, there is, spoiler alert. Um, what about all those carbohydrates? Isn't it too high in carbs? And, and, and this is a fair point that people make is, what if they wanna do a low carb version of a plant-based diet? That's getting a little tricky now. And I think that if you're gonna do a plant-based diet, you've gotta be willing to surrender in certain aspects of your life and say, you know what? Perhaps I need to amend my relationship with carbohydrates and adopt mm. this dietary pattern instead of trying to make my dietary pattern meet my carbohydrate goals. You mean like a keto plant-based? Right. It, it can be done, but a lot of the, the protein sources that you get from plants come with carbohydrates. So it is. I think it's tricky. I haven't tried it, and I, <laughs> that's one experiment I don't really want to try right now. Um, but some people want to try to do that version, and it's possible, but I really think that... I think we need to like zoom out a little bit and look long-term. What do you want to achieve long-term? If you want to achieve a diet that is attached to values and ethics, a diet that makes you feel satiated and full, that contains all the nutrients you need, that you can build muscle and you can still reduce your risk of chronic disease, reduce your risk of developing cardiovascular disease, our biggest killer, then the plant-based diet is ticking all of those boxes. And... Some people might find that they can't stick to it, that you know, they have digestive discomfort or it's just not for them. Well, then you can do an 85% plant-based diet and get a lot of the, probably all of the benefits, to be honest, other than the ethical side and environmental perhaps. But most of the health benefits come from going 85% plant-based, I would say. And I think that there is research to support that. So yeah, you don't have to go 100%. But maybe you start at 80, 85, and you nudge your way to 100. And some people will be surprised at how kind of easy it is to do once you're in the, in the groove. What are, what are some ways of 
of getting people started with that? I mean, there's certain people, you know, it sounds like you just were like, okay, I'm in and you just snap your fingers and you're all in mm-hmm. overnight. I had a similar kind of way of getting into it. Most people are not like, that. you know, mm-hmm. like how do I dip my toe in this? How do I, you know, break up with some of my favorite foods that um, I feel powerless to put behind? Like, how do you embark upon this journey in a way that you're focused on creating new sustainable habits that will last you the test of time and not just get you through a 30 day experiment? Mm. Well, I think going back to what we spoke about before is if you can attach your dietary change to something a lot deeper than just vanity or aesthetics and you think about ethics or environment or something a little bit stronger, if you have a pull towards that, it's gonna be easier to to do it. But I think understanding the swaps you've got to make. So, you know, maybe it starts with reducing the portion size of the animal product on your plate. You don't have to eliminate it entirely, but just reduce it. And then maybe the 50% reduction that you've taken away, you put in with beans or tofu or tempeh or something plant-based. So you're still getting the protein dose you need. Half of it may be coming from plant protein, the other half from animal protein. And then slowly you can just nudge towards the plant protein over time adding new vegetables and fruits and trying new things. Like, you know, I hadn't eaten fruit, like a diversity of fruit in many, many, many years. And you forget how bloody good fruit is. Like, it's really delicious. And there's so many different types. It's not just apples and oranges. Like, take a, take a leaf out of Robbie's book. Go to a, f- a market and fall in love with the, the variety I mean, that of guy fruit. has, uh, you know, a, a weird, like, romantic obsession. Yeah, yeah. With, like, durian <laughs> and, like, you know, like, it's like, what is the fetishization <laughs> yes. that certain people have with durian? Like, uh, Doug Evans is the same way. It's so funny. Yes. Like, I'm like, you guys should just get married or get a room. <laughs> like, it's weird, you know? <laughs> it is bizarre. I, yeah. I mean, I don't understand it. I'm not that way inclined. No. But, yeah, they, they have romanticized that relationship for sure. With, I mean, Robbie knows the name, names of fruits that I've never heard of. You know, he's, he shows us on Instagram like this strange looking thing. That, Where people, know. normal people have bookshelves. He has yeah. like shelves and he puts all his fruit, fruit up on there. The I yeah. mean, it's like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But I guess, look, you got to fall in love with the food you're eating. You got to enjoy it. That's sustainable, you know. And if it's healthy food, that's even better. I mean, a lot of people fall in love with foods that aren't so good for them. So I think if you're going to move the needle, you've got to be willing to experiment. You've got to be willing to try new foods. Make it taste good. This is the thing. If it tastes shit, you're not going to eat it. And a lot of people t- tend to say, oh, tofu, yuck, it's so bland. Yeah, marinate it. Make it, do whatever you do to your chicken, you can use the same thing for your tofu or use the tofu as the, the canvas and, you know, make it tasty. Find recipes online. You know, there's so many great plant-based recipes and homemade dressings and sauces and you've you got to find a way to actually make it taste good. I think that's an important one because mm-hmm. it's really easy to eat some boring meals and go, no, it wasn't for me. Yeah, because you, you had boring meals. Make them enjoyable. Yeah, I think you have to make it fun and and not uh, make it so pressurized mm. uh, and adhere to some kind of perfectionist ideal um, such that when you have a weak moment or you lapse into some old, you know, kind of habit that doesn't serve you, it's like, okay, that's fine. Just get back to what's the next best choice. Totally. And, you know, how can I exp- like, like find new recipes and, and, and turn it into, you know, something that's just that, that, that ignites your curiosity and doesn't feel like heavy and burdensome. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it's easier now than it ever has been 
if you go on social media and you follow a few people who have, you know, amazing recipes and they teach you how to do it from scratch. I mean, there is definitely the side of it that people don't talk about enough is sort of like culinary skills, like actually learning how to cook is quite important because, I mean, even in Bondi, there's a shortage of plant-based restaurants. I mean, there's a handful of them, but not all restaurants are going to have a plant-based option. So a lot of your eating is probably going to be done at home, which is probably healthier for you anyway because you know what you're putting in the food. So you've got to get those skills and learn how to cook. That's probably another good good yeah. place to do all your cooking. I do a lot of it. Yeah. So when you go out, what what happens when you go out to eat, and like, how do you manage like the social uh, aspect of the whole thing? Because I feel like that's really the Achilles' heel. Uh, people don't want to be problematic in social settings. They don't want to, you know, have uh, you know, be in situations where like they are making other people uncomfortable because mm. they have a certain way of eating, and it just becomes tricky and complicated. Yeah. The social aspect is very interesting because, I mean, for me, it's actually double-edged because on one hand- I've Your life th- depends on it. Like you right. have, this is your, this is your job, right? Right, right. But also- It's different. Th- you, have a, you have an excuse that right. everyone is going to be like, cool. And, and I hate that. I hate, mm. I hate leaning on diabetes as the excuse, which is easy to do when I go out. It's like, oh guys, you know, I have to eat this because my diabetes, it's, it's an easy thing to do, but I try my best not to do it. And I told myself from day one, I will- I know it's not my fault I have it, but it's my responsibility to manage it and I'm never going to use it as an excuse because I want to empower myself to do whatever the hell I want to do in this world. And if I'm leaning on it, even once as a crutch, it's just going to trickle into other things in my life and I don't want that to be an excuse. So, you know what? You just got to own it. So when I go out with friends and, you know, we finished rugby season once, we went to a pub here in Bondi and all the boys ordered burgers and chips and steak and stuff. And I, you know, really quietly pulled the waitress aside and I said... Hey, actually, I, I I don't eat meat. Have you got anything on the menu that's vegan or plant-based? And she's like, yeah, we'll whip something up for you. Anyway, all the food comes out, all these burgers line up the table. And then I get this like rainbow bowl, like this Buddha bowl, most beautiful looking thing. And the boys all look at me and they go, hey, that looks really good. I didn't see that on the menu. And I'm like, yeah, I just asked, you know, for the way she, they said, I wonder if we can get some. So, I mean, look, if you can just own it, and be willing to, I was willing for them to say the comments, whatever, soy boy, whatever they wanted to say. I owned it. I held my ground. I enjoyed my meal. And it turns out that they wanted to taste it too. So. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That's cool. Um, well, I just think that you're you know, a really powerful example of this lifestyle. Young, vibrant, living with type 1 diabetes, but not in a way that it's inhibiting you in any meaningful way. And uh the fact that you have, you know, in good faith, lived these other lifestyles and have kind of arrived here and this is a sustainable solution that's working for you is amazing. And I think that uh, that gives you a certain resonance, you know, when you talk about it, that that's really powerful. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. So I appreciate you coming to talk to me today. You have this website, Drew's Daily Dose. Uh, You've got all kinds of resources there for anybody who's curious about how you do what you do. You've got these five pillars. We talked about nutrition and exercise, but there's mindfulness and, you know, we talked about managing blood glucose and all of that, Um, but you have lots of tools and resources uh, Mm. and kind of a whole protocol. Yeah. I mean, I was one part of the story that I didn't mention was after being diagnosed, I went back to uni and got a degree as a diabetes educator. Because I thought, you know, I'm 
in the perfect position to educate people. You know, I'm, I've got this family of doctors. I'm educated. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a diabetes educator. I'm living with diabetes. How could I not share this information? So Drew's Daily Dose was my way of sort of figuring out a protocol, that five-pillar protocol to help people. Mm -hmm. And I, I was consulting a lot online and doing coaching and one-on-ones, but... You know, now I'm at the point where I really want to reach way more people at once. And Simon and I have got some really fun ideas for some online courses that we want to start generating around certain niche groups and diabetes obviously being a huge part of it. And I just released, you know, after 12 years of doing all this social media stuff or whatever it is, um, I just released my first like training program, like an on online training program, you know, resistance training for strength and hypertrophy cardio zone two i know you love your mm -hmm. zone two zone five all like evidence-based protocols and an ebook with you know it's like sixteen thousand words 50 pages you know explaining the state of the evidence in terms of you want to gain muscle and, and you know, build muscle build strength and improve your cardiovascular fitness for health and longevity this was my way of distilling all of that into this ebook with like videos of every exercise and eight-week programs and so I just, I actually just only released that a couple of weeks ago. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool, exciting, um, and uh, and uh, really interesting. I mean, we could have done a whole podcast on, you know, endurance training, strength training, hit high intensity, all of that. Like I know that you and Simon have spoken at length about that on mm. various podcasts. So mm. um, you have plenty more to share. Oh, there's so much. Do this again if you find yourself in Los oh, Angeles. Um, yeah, so if you're if you're digging on Drew and his message, like I said, there's twelve at least twelve conversations so. be between you and Simon on the there's proof and yeah. and your website. Lots of stuff out there for you to kind of learn more and dig a little bit deeper. Is there anywhere else that you want to direct people? You know, I'm, I'm active on Instagram. That's the mm -hmm. only social media account I've got. Drew's Daily Dose. Um, and Simon and I are, are running some retreats now, actually. Oh uh, yeah, did you just do the Bali one? It's in is October. That, it's coming up. Yeah, yeah coming cool. up in October. Mm. Um, is it sold out? We might be opening a second week. Uh, so there's definitely space and we plan to make that the best week ever. And I know you just did one, right? In, was it yeah, in Italy? yeah, yeah, in Italy. A little bit different than right. the one that you're doing, but it looked cool. I was checking it out and the location looks insane. Beautiful location, yeah. world-class surfing wave right out the front of the resort. We're going to make it very education heavy as Simon and I love our, our science and education. So yeah, everyone's getting blood work. Right, right. Like, everyone's getting blood work. <laughs> Probably going to get DEXA scans mm -hmm. as well. And we want to make it not just a week, but like an ongoing protocol. And we'll still check in with people and stay on top of their blood work mm -hmm. and all of their goals and build the community in person and online and just keep it going. I mean, look, this is Simon's, he's done all the hard work. I'm definitely... I came on as the exercise physiologist, but he's so generous that he's, you know, taking me along for the ride. So I'm just so grateful in so many ways for him. I mean, we're here in his studio, Waves Bondi. He got me on this plant-based diet. We're doing these retreats together. So, you know, we're in his what a studio. Legend. Yeah, it's, no. I mean, he's an unbelievable person. Like when I was here in January, I mean, he just hooked me up and is so, uh, you know, open and and like you said, generous with mm. with what he has. He's a he's a really extraordinary person. Great. I'm very grateful to have in my life. Me too. And Share he brought us together right. here in his home. So that's right. <laughs> Shout out to Simon, Shout of course. Uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to go up, but it'll probably be sold out by that time. But if not, go to theproof.com. There's a whole kind that's of right. landing page there with yeah. more information on that. And uh, this was cool, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I can't believe we did this here in Bondi. It's quite surreal for I me. Know, I'm a little jet lagged. I hope I <laughs> 
didn't come off too incoherent, <laughs> no. but I just let you talk the whole time. You seemed very aware. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Drew. Thank Cheers. you so much. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.